Well, welcome to the hills, all of you that are watching online and in person at North Richmond Hills, Keller, and West Fort Worth. Uh, my name is Rick. I say that because if you've been with us only the last couple of weeks, you haven't met me yet because I had the privilege of a lifetime to go with some dear friends and spend a, few, a couple of weeks in the place that we call the Holy Lands. I had high expectations for the trip, and they were exceeded. It really was a, a life-changing experience, and I look forward to telling you more about it. Thank you for praying for me while I was gone, and I also want to publicly thank Taylor Walling for bringing such a good word to our church while I was gone. Can we do that, please? I listened to every message, and it was a good word about the power of our words. I know you were blessed. Now, I promised before I left that I would not try to overwhelm you with pictures, but I'm not going to be able to completely resist. In fact, I'm going to start with one. I want to show you this picture. That's the Jordan River. That's the traditional spot where the Israelites crossed into the promised land. It's a spot where Elijah parted the river on his way to his own departure. But most of all, that's the spot where they believe Jesus was baptized. That Jesus came to John and John said, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, no, it's the right thing to do. Let that sink in. Jesus said, it's the right thing for me to get baptized. Jesus was baptized. And Jesus told his disciples to baptize others. And so on March the 19th, a reminder, we're having baptism Sunday. And I know I'm talking to people right now who haven't been baptized yet. This is your opportunity. Tell your friends, tell your family. If you have questions, we've got classes. We'd love to talk to you about it. But it's an important thing to do. And I'm encouraging you to think about getting baptized if you have not made that decision already. Now, as you can tell, I'm fighting a chest cold. So pray for me. I'm going to do my best to power through this because I have a word I really want to bring you today. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. I'll begin with a story about a time a few years ago when my wife was out of town. I don't remember why, but I thought, well, I'm bored. I think I will go see a movie. Now, if I am picking the movie, one of two things, either someone's going to win a big game or something is about to explode. So I picked a movie where things were supposed to explode. I get my Coke and my popcorn. I'm sitting in my seat. The movie begins and an actress named Jennifer Aniston walks onto the screen. And I'm thinking, she's not in movies where things explode. And I realized I had walked into a theater where they were showing what is called a chick flick. I should have known 80% of the audience was female and the other 20% looked totally whipped. So I just began to cough and fake an illness so I could get out of there because it just feels really awkward when you're in a place where you don't feel like you fit in. And it's especially awkward when you feel out of place in your own place. Welcome to the book of 1 Peter. Look at the first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's a part of the world that we would call Turkey today. Did you notice two words he put together that don't seem like they should go together? Elect exiles. Who elects to be an exile? And other versions may use that word uh, foreigner or stranger 
or a temporary resident. And this theme of being exiled or alien goes all through the book of First Peter, like chapter 1, verse 17. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Or in chapter 2, verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now, some of you have had the experience I had recently of being in a place that wasn't your place. Israel's particularly strange because you go through a security checkpoint and you're in Palestinian authority and then you're back in Israel and then you're back in Palestinian authority and it's a bit disoriented. We've all had that experience Then you're in a place that's not your place. But that's not who Peter's writing to. He's writing to people that have lived all their lives where they are when they get this letter. And he's calling them exiles. They're out of place in their own place. Not because of their race or their ancestry or their status, but because they have decided to put faith in the Lord Jesus. And that has made them strange. It still does. When people place their faith in Christ, they go from being alienated from God to becoming aliens for God. In other words, Graced people become displaced people. And have you ever noticed how much of the Bible is written to help people deal with the tension of feeling like an exile? Because we don't like to be out of place. One of our strongest drives is to fit in. You don't believe me? Look back at the pictures of the clothes you wore in high school. When I was a freshman in college, there was a popular singer named John Denver who said we should all have a Rocky Mountain High, and it became cool to be a mountain man. So we all went out, and we bought big old heavy mountain boots and big old heavy flannel shirts, and those that could grew beers. Now, here's the truth. Most of us were so city-fied, you put us out in the mountain wilderness, we wouldn't have lasted two days. But we walked around looking like we were mountain men. And I went to school in Abilene. It was 118 degrees in September, and we're wearing flannel shirts because of this strong drive to fit in. Nobody wants to feel out of place, and especially when it comes with criticism and pushback. And that's what Peter's readers were experiencing. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Non-believers think it is strange that you do not do the many wild and wasteful things they do, so they insult you. You see, as followers of Jesus, we sing a song that cannot be harmonized with the prevailing melodies of our culture. So stop trying. Stop trying to craft a Christianity that doesn't offend anybody. Stop trying to craft a Christianity that doesn't stand out. If you hold to core Christian convictions and behaviors, you are going to look strange to a world that doesn't accept Jesus as Lord. And I know it's exhausting and trying and tiring. Peter did too. Peter knew you need a living hope to be odd for God. 
I'm not talking about hope so. I'm talking about an unshakable confidence that is rooted in an unchanging reality. So Peter doesn't take long to tell you what that hope is. Chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, hope cannot be resuscitated if Jesus wasn't. But hope cannot be killed if the one that they killed came back from the dead. And so what we're going to do for six weeks is we're just going to explore how the resurrection of Jesus gives us living hope regarding some of the most important realities of life. And we're going to begin today with salvation. Why can we have a living hope in the salvation of God? So we're going to read verses 3 through 12 of 1 Peter 1. I want you to follow along with me. I want you to notice closely how he connects hope to salvation. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us birth, new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. And so Peter ties hope to salvation in three ways. And let me tell you quickly what they are. Here's the first. He says, we can know that my salvation was decided in the past. That one reason we're willing to be strangers for God is that we're no longer estranged from God. And this was God's idea. In fact, we skip verse two, go back and look at it with me. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago and the spirit has made you holy as a result you've obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ may God give you more and more grace and peace so what he's saying is God chose you for salvation a long time before you ever chose God now what Peter is not saying is that God has predetermined some people are going to get saved and some people are going to be lost and there's nothing either group can do about it because that would refute 
Peter's own preaching. The first sermon he ever preached in Acts chapter 2. People said, what should we do? He said, you should repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this promise is for you and for all who are far off. In Acts chapter 10, when the Spirit falls down on Cornelius and all the Gentiles in his house, Peter says, I now realize God doesn't play favorites. That the gospel of Jesus is available for everyone. So he's not saying God chose some to be saved and some to be lost. What he's saying is that God predecided that all that trusted in the salvation plan that he enacted when he chose a guy named Abraham. A man who's going to have a seed and that's going to bring forth the Messiah who's going to suffer. And the prophets talked about all this, even though they didn't totally understand it. God decided, I'm going to enact a salvation plan, and whoever has faith in this plan, and whoever accepts this plan, and whoever surrenders to my son is going to be washed in his blood and going to be sanctified by the power of his spirit. And God has said, I chose this plan and made it available to everyone. Now, the prophets and the angels were so excited, but they couldn't quite figure out what God was up to. Let me illustrate this way. Sports Illustrated magazine in 2014 had a controversial cover of the Houston Astros predicting they would win a World Series. Now, the Astros had lost over 100 games several years in a row. They were the worst team in baseball, but they were amassing a core of great young talent. And the Illustrated magazine said they're going to win a World Series in a few years. And they did. Now, if you don't like the Astros, you're going to say that's because they cheated. If you do like the Astros, you're going to say, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. <laughs> Either way, we can look back and see what they predicted is right. See, we're on the other side. We have more insight than the prophets. We see things the angels wanted to see. Now, remember, Peter is writing to people that are struggling with feeling odd. There was great pressure to abandon their weirdness and conform to the culture's value system. And so Peter says, listen, you got to remember who you are. Now, yes, you're an exile and the culture has rejected you, but you're chosen and God has elected you. Remember that church. Long before you chose God, God elected you. Now, that's why when you give your testimony, don't start with I. Don't start with, well, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to summer camp. I was going through a rough season. No, you start with God. God set his affection on me long before I ever decided to love him. That's why I'm saved. And that's why we can be sure of our salvation. Our salvation doesn't depend on what we do. It depends on what God decided to do in Christ. And by the way, this wasn't just Peter's doctrine. This was his experience. Two weeks ago, I stood in the spot where Peter denied Jesus. Three times. You remember why? He wanted to fit in. He was under pressure. He didn't want to feel left out. So he denied Christ. But then two weeks ago, Sunday... I stood on the banks of the Sea of Galilee in the spot where Peter was reinstated. Where Jesus made some fish and said, Peter, do you love me? Go feed my sheep. 
And Peter realized that the resurrected Jesus had forgiven him. That his sins were washed in blood and that blood had the final word. He was chosen. And being chosen made being an exile worth it. Our salvation has been decided. And that has a huge impact on how we decide to handle the challenges of being exiles. That's the second thing Peter says. My salvation was decided in the past and it brings joy in the present. See, you shouldn't think it's strange that it's going to be hard to live a strange life. It is. But notice what he said. Look again, verse 5 and 6. God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Okay, let's be honest. Some of you take issue with that verse because your suffering hasn't been a little while. It's been a long time. And one of the problems that we experience today as believers is misunderstanding the gospel. It's not a prosperity gospel. Jesus never said, just follow me and all your troubles will go away. I know that sells on TV. What Jesus said is that in this world, you will have trouble. Some of you need to stop being mad at God for not keeping a promise he never made. We are going to have trouble in this world. And here's the second thing to remember. Some of the trouble we're going to have is specifically because we are Christians. Faith doesn't promise joy without suffering. It promises joy despite suffering. Now, let me show you why I mean that. For one thing, when challenges and trials and suffering come our way, they help us discard the things we have put hope in that we should not have put hope in. Isn't that true? When life gets tough, you find out all those things that you were putting hope in are flimsy gods. Trials expose our idols. And that's a good thing. Something else Peter said. When we go through trials as Christians, as exiles, God has put us in a place where we have an amazing opportunity to reveal our hope that causes people to lean in. Peter said later in this book, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you had. Can I just be honest? Nobody is ever going to walk up to you and say, give me a reason for the hope that you have. Here's what can happen. When you suffer well, when you go through suffering and trial and you are resilient and you are peaceful and even joyful, 
People want to know how you do it. And you have an opportunity to share the hope that you have. And one more thing. And again, I know for some of you right now, this is hard to hear. But your suffering really is for a little while. Your suffering is a temporary reality. Your salvation is an eternal reality. And this is the word throughout the scripture, like Romans chapter 8. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Or 2 Corinthians 4. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. If they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them, it will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. So you see, when I have hope in my ultimate future, it affects how I handle my immediate future. It was 80 years ago this month that our nation experienced one of her worst naval disasters. The USS Dorchester was transporting over 1,000 troops to the, US, uh, the European theater. Just after midnight, it was struck by a torpedo from a Nazi U-boat. Over 600 men lost their lives that night. One of the stories they tell were about four of those men. They were the chaplains on that ship. Because of their position, they were offered safe passage on the few lifeboats the ship had. They declined. Not only that, they gave up their life jackets to soldiers that didn't have them. They were last seen linked arm in arm, singing praises to God and praying for the salvation of all those men that were about to meet their maker. Now, let's be honest. If this life is all there is, those four men were fools. If this life is all there is, You're a fool if you don't make looking out for number one, the number one agenda of your life. But those men would say, as they face death, praising God, I've got a hope that transcends my trial. That living hope isn't One day I will be joyful. Living hope is this day. I will be joyful because one day I will see Jesus. My salvation is decided. That happened in the past. God did that. My salvation brings me joy right now, even though life gets really, really tough. And one more thing. My salvation is kept for the future. You ever had a place that you thought was kept and it wasn't? 
You made a reservation for a nice restaurant or you booked a hotel room. You rented a car. You show up at the counter. I'm sorry, we don't have any cars. You have a doctor's appointment or a job interview and you show up. I'm sorry, we're too busy. We all know what it's like. I thought this was kept for me and it's not. And one thing the enemy wants to do is sow into your mind the idea your salvation didn't kept. Let me tell you what Jesus said right before he left. He said, you're going to have trouble in this world, but, but be a good cheer. I am going to prepare a place for you. I'm, I'm building a room just for you. And when it's ready, I'll come back. And let me tell you something. There's already a nameplate on your door. God has made sure that what his son paid for is safe and that it can never perish, spoil, or fade. Look again at verse 4. We have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. Do you see what he said? This inheritance can't be changed, and it can't decay. Now, inheritances are often contested. We know that. Somebody may contest a will and say, the person who wrote this will is not a sound mind. Can you say that about God? Can anybody bring the charge? Well, God didn't know what he was talking about when he made the will. Sometimes you contest a will and say, well, the person that's supposed to receive the inheritance is disqualified. You can't say that anymore. Those charges are baseless. Those accusations are thrown out of court. Everything that would have disqualified you has been erased by the blood of Jesus. You see, your inheritance is like the resurrected body of Jesus. His body will never decay. And neither will your inheritance. It was given by God. It was stamped in the blood of Jesus. It is secured and guarded by the Holy Spirit. And when you know that your true place is secure then you can live out of place in this place. And suddenly that's not so strange. In fact, I'll tell you what is strange. What is strange is that you would compromise your core Christian convictions and behaviors to get applauded by a hopeless culture who has nothing to say to you when you face that moment that you're about to pass. I don't need the well done of this culture. I want the well done of the only one that entered into a grave and came back to talk about it. And the reward, Peter says, for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. So we're going to spend a few weeks talking about what it means to be odd for God. And it's hard. When I was a boy, my culture in general supported core Christian convictions and behaviors. That day's gone. We're going to have to raise our children and our grandchildren to embrace oddness. And it's hard. 
But even more hard is to live in a place where death has the final word. How do you cope with how tough life is if you don't have a living hope? With all that is within me, I am here to declare that's all, folks, is a lie. Death does not get the last word. And if the tomb is empty, then our hope tanks should stay full. That became especially clear to me those two weeks I was in Israel. We went to two different sites. Those are the most popular to visit as possible places where Jesus' body may have been laid. You may have seen the picture of that site. Most likely it's not because that's an older tomb from the 7th century B.C. It says Jesus was laid in a new tomb. The site that's more likely is in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You see the shrine that is built over the tomb where they think Jesus was buried. For one thing, the place of the crucifixion was nearby. And also in that area, there are many tombs. In fact, literally just a few yards away from that shrine, we saw this tomb that is something like where they placed the body of Jesus. And I reflected while I was there how global my faith is. I heard so many languages. I saw pilgrims from five different continents all in one place because of the life of an itinerant rabbi. And the funny thing about my faith is it should never have happened. My faith wasn't invented 300 years after this rabbi died in some faraway place. But just a few days after he died, in the place where he died, they started preaching, he is risen, and they couldn't stop the movement because they couldn't find his body. And so we're at these two sites, and I love what one of the guides said. We don't know exactly where he was laid, but here's, it doesn't matter where you go, he's not in there. <laughs> and then he said, with a smile. You people came all this way to see nothing. <laughs> and that nothing changes everything. And so, a couple of days after we got back, I got a phone call in the middle of the night. My father's in the hospital. Now he's back in hospice at his memory care center. My father's in the very last days of his life, maybe the last hours. And suddenly it really, really matters. Is the Christian faith just a bunch of pithy slogans and maxims and principles? Or is it built in rock-solid historical fact? My father's race is almost over. Every day we go, we talk to him, we, we sing over him. I don't know if he can hear or not. But here's what I do know. He has placed his faith in the identity, sufficiency, and supremacy of Jesus of Nazareth. And the end result of his faith will be the salvation 
of his soul. And friend, that is a good place to be. So let's pray. So Father, I ask for your blessing. We need more resilience. We need more courage. It's not easy to be odd. What we need more than anything is hope. Not hope so, but absolute, solid, unshakable conviction that the story is true, that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, that he is sitting beside you right now at the throne, and he is coming back. When the rooms are all finished, we will finally be in the place where we truly belong. Until then, give us courage to live in this place with hope, integrity, nobility, and courage. We're so thankful death does not have the last word. We're so thankful the blood of Jesus does. And Jesus, we hope you come soon. Until then, call more people to yourself. I'm praying right now that someone listening to me will obey the words of Peter's very first sermon. That they will repent. They will be baptized into the name of Jesus. Receiving forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, God, we're not saying hope so. We're saying we know it's true. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.